it's 11.30. Welcome to the October Book Club. And today's book that we're going to be discussing, discussing, yeah, that's how I felt about the book, discussing is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep. And uh, for those of you that are close to me know I don't really mind saying that word, but I'm not sure who's on the phone, so I will uh, refrain. But boy, oh boy, he did not refrain from saying that word a lot in the first, I think, two chapters. I think he was trying to weed people out. And, and I also, I read it, I uh, listened to it, and then read parts of the hard copy. So uh, I have a bunch of thoughts. It, it For me, it took me probably 75% of the way through before I felt that I was starting to get some meat out of it, and maybe it was just the compounded effort of the material. I'm not really sure. Um, I did post, you know, probably three or four chapters in that I was I was miserable um, reading it because I'm a very positive person, and he absolutely, you know, r- right up front says you know, positivity and being happy all the time, you know, is not the way to live. So I was resistant as I was reading it throughout. Um, but, you know, I, what, what do they say when the lesson is needed, the teacher appears. So <laughs> the more I read it and the more I tried to open my mind to what he was saying so that we could have a meaningful discussion today, it, um, you know, it de- he definitely – in the end, I think the book redeemed itself for me, and I got some good things out of it. So I, uh, as always, welcome your comments as we're discussing. Uh, I'll jump in, and if anyone – if it, does anyone want to say anything now about if they liked the book or if they got anything out of it overall from the 30,000 foot – you know, was it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Anyone want to share before we get going? No, probably because when, once I posted it, you, maybe you guys okay. didn't even read it. So, anyway, I will I will read. I'm going to read a, a few quotes. We're going to start with this one. He says, Mark Manson says, these five values are both unconventional and uncomfortable, but to me they're life changing. The first, which he says to look at in the first chapter, is the radical form of responsibility taking responsibility for everything that occurs in your life, regardless of who's at fault. Mm -hmm. Taking responsibility regardless of who's at fault. Very interesting. The second is uncertainty. The acknowledgement of your own ignorance and cultivation of constant doubt in your own beliefs. The next is failure, the the willingness to discover your own flaws and mistakes so that they can be improved upon. The fourth is rejection, the ability to say no and hear no, thus clearly defining what you will and will not accept in your life. And the final value is the contemplation of one's own mortality. This one's crucial because paying vigilant attention to one's own death is perhaps the only thing capable of helping us all keep our other values in proper perspective. So um, I thought that that was a great kind of overview of the things he was going to dive in in on. But, wow, taking radical form of responsibility, taking responsibility for everything that occurs in your life, regardless of who's at fault. So I think the world is full of people that don't take responsibility, and I think the world supports that. I think the media does. I think our I think parents do. Um, I find myself as a parent, you know, always trying to hold my kids responsible. But it's we're kind of in a world where responsibility is 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 put off. You know, when when leasing agents call me and they say I can't get the lease the leasing rates that my boss has told me I have to charge. You know, I then put it back on them and say, well, you know, when was the last time you did a very good thorough market study, which included, you know, contacting and speaking to your neighborhood leasing agents so that your boss, 
you know, whether you were involved in the budgeting process or not, has real-time information versus uh, your writer of the asset who maybe was in acquisitions, whether it's CoStar or LoopNet. So, and, and I know it's hard when you, if you have 20 properties and 19 of them are outside of your market and your firm doesn't let you travel to those markets, it's kind of almost impossible, but it's still, it's, you know, you can still do it by trying to get relationships over the phone and at ICSE conferences. But I think that we, we leasing agents have to take responsibility for if we're not doing deals, why are we not doing deals and not just saying, well, the rents are too high right, and putting it off on whoever assigned us those rental rates. Any thoughts on that? Because I think that that kind of boils down to, or, you know, or, or you know, or we're not leasing space because, you know, like I'm just, if some of you know, I recently, came, you know, came to the conclusion I was having a horrible time leasing one of my properties, and I hired Mike Mogerman from Trinity Group to do it. And um, that in and of itself is a whole other topic for a call. But, um, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I was justifying. I, you know, it's a, it, the, the spaces are destination spaces. I'm having a hard time finding destination tenants. The property's blocked by four out parcels. Yada, you know, not enough parking. Yada, 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 yada. So taking radical form of responsibility, yes, I have four out parcels, but you know, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be trying to lease the space. And two years ago, it was 95% leased. So if it was 95% leased two years ago, it can get there again. So anyone want to jump in on this radical form of responsibility that we should all be taking when it comes to leasing our space? Hey, hey, Beth, it's Barry. Hi. Hey, I will be honest. I did not read the book, um, but I just along those lines, and it's probably the only input I could give. But along those lines, I was just watching or listened to a vlog post the other day, and it really resonated with me. It was along these lines. Basically, the premise was whatever circumstance you have in your life, it was basically it's your fault. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if, if, mm-hmm. even if it's just a matter of how you respond to whatever happened to you, that's your fault. It was. It really. I gave it a lot of thought, and it resonated a lot with me. And it sounds very similar to what he said in the book that whatever circumstance you have in your life, if you can't leave something, don't no excuses. It's your fault. Now figure out why it's your fault and go correct it. Right, right. Well, that's and, and that's really what he talks about a lot in the book is start with it's my fault. Now take action. You know, and whether it is or you know, look, we're in the recession and no one's doing leases. Recession, you know, that's not my fault, but we still have to lease it. So that if you take it, I I like what you said, because if you say, okay, it's my fault no matter what, now you've got to take action to try to do something and be creative. And it's just so easy to just kind of put it off and say, well, I'm not leasing because of this. I'm not leasing because of that. I'm not leasing because of that. Okay. Well, yes, those, all those three things happen now. Put those aside, and now what can you do creatively to figure it out, right? Thank you. Yeah. Hi, this is India. Um, Hi. I want to say something to you. Hi. I want to say something to you on that point. It really resonated with me as well. Um, someone told me that we create we create our universe, right? And, I mean, I don't like the word funk. I'll say that. But in every situation, and I'm guilty of this and we're all guilty of this, in every situation, looking at it from a perspective of, okay, like, what did I do to create this? You know? And mm-hmm. I think – there's like that, you know, there is, there's always, you know, there are things outside of our control, obviously, but I think that it's something that, that I'm, it's a lesson that I'm, I think applies universally, not only to leasing, but in, in general. And I think just looking at, you know, looking at ourselves in the situation instead of coming from the standpoint of not like a victim, but just kind of, you know, like everyone else is not, you know, and looking at, you know, internally and saying, you know, how did I create this? What could I do differently? And, I think just going, taking that route um, is, I mean, I think it kind of is in alignment with, with what you just said and really resonated yeah. with me as well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And, and you know, he, he writes also, he says, to be happy, which, again, he, he really doesn't like. <laughs> he, the whole first half of the book is don't be positive and don't try to be happy, which, you know, for those of you that know me, that's like just the opposite of me. So I was, 
I was mad the first five chapters. I was so mad at this guy. But anyway, um, he says, to be happy, we need something to solve. Happiness is therefore a form of action, which I do agree with that. I do agree that. And then he says, um, then he says, in the long run, hold on. He says, in the long run, completing a marathon makes us happier than eating a chocolate cake. Raising a child makes us happier than beating a video game. Starting a small business with friends while struggling to make ends meet makes us happier than buying a new computer. These activities are stressful, arduous, and often unpleasant. They also require withstanding problem after problem. Yet, they are some of the most meaningful moments and joyous things we'll ever do. They involve pain, struggle, even anger and despair. Yet once they're accomplished, we look back and get all misty-eyed telling our grandkids about them. And I thought, absolutely, I'm the happiest when I have, and probably, and he says all of us are, when we strive, we have a challenge, you know, like a, a marathon, and we train and we train and we train. It's kind of like, you know, we have space to lease, and we canvassed, and we cold called, and we networked, and we, you know, did everything. We Facebook prospected, and and then three, six months, nine months later, we've leased three spaces, and we look back and go, wow, you know, that it didn't happen by happenstance, right? We put in the effort, and the rejection was hard, but we took action, and the result, you know, proved out. Has anyone on the call, you know, run a marathon? And had and did the training and, and, and can compare that to what we do we all do for a living with in sales. Stuart, are you on the phone? You can't be good at leasing if you have the time to run a marathon, right? <laughs> Is that my friend Aaron? Yeah. Well, Stuart Shapiro runs marathons and he's in leasing, so he finds the time, right? Yeah. No, I, I was being facetious. So, Aaron, any challenges that you've overcome over the years that you, you know, look back and say, wow, you know, it, it absolutely took action and work, and it, in being happy, you know, you just don't snap your fingers. You know, it's, a, it's an end game, but, but, and then, you know, like you said, in the long run, completing the marathon makes us happier than eating the chocolate cake, and the chocolate cake is, you know, let me just eat the chocolate cake and not do the marathon. Right. Let me just take yeah, the call-ins on the leasing. Let me just sit at my desk and take call-ins. You know, that's that. Even if we do a deal, and maybe maybe I'm wrong here. I know we all want to do deals, but sitting in your office and taking a call-in and getting a deal, I don't think is as uh, satisfact satisfactory. No, satisfying than working hard, finding that gem. You know, cold calling, visiting, calling, and then making that deal. Am I right? Hundred percent. I feel. I, I feel bad. I feel bad if, if the phone rings and we just do a deal. It, it's almost like I um, don't deserve the same commission percentage that you would get on a deal where you went and canvassed the tenant and talked to them six times, or 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 uh, you get to fly, or you had a, you cold called a national retailer and you had to fly up to their office and. And uh, not, I'm not going to use the word lie, but maybe played a little bit of poker on co-tenancy that you were, you know, trying to do a, a ground-up development with, and one of the, and the and the and the balls, you know, start falling in the right place. So uh, there's, I would definitely concur with you, Beth, in the sense that uh, all deals may be paid, may look the same on paper, but they don't, they don't feel the same. Having to go out and earn something, and 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 finding a site where maybe you you worked really hard to relocate a tenant because you started talking to them two and a half years ago and you followed up every six months and, then, and as it got closer to their lease expiration, you finally got them to relocate. Um, I, I, I would 100% agree. And if somebody disagrees, I would encourage them to, to speak up because I'd love to know what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a black and white issue, but it, it would be something I'd, I'd like to hear kind of somebody's thoughts that may be contradicted with that, if that even exists. I feel like it doesn't matter where the dirt comes from. More action means more action. And I think that you can sit around at the desk and wait for that call and, you know, to, to lease a space. Or you can go out and pull a call and actively, I mean, actively, proactively, you know, whatever it takes to find that tenant. And then you might get that call. 
of that dream tenant that happens to call you, and that might be the one. But I don't think – I think that the more – the more that you do and the more that you actively pursue it, the third is, you know, it's like when it rains, it pours. And I don't think you can, I don't think it's one size fits all, but I think that, I think that the more, the more likely that I'm going to get that dream call is when I'm taking action and going out there and trying to find that dream tenant. I think just energetically, I mean, it, it just happened to me, you know, and I think that, like, I think that that, for me, I, I think, like, it's both. Right. Well, and you know what I call that is canvassing karma, right? So I do believe yeah. that once we are out there working our butts off, getting rejection after rejection after rejection, I've gotten emails from many of you that said, oh, I have canvassing <laughs> karma today because, you know, the universe does reward us for getting the rejection and getting off of our butts and getting out there. Okay, changing changing a little. Um, oh, Beth, here. this is Sharon. Yeah, Sharon, tell me. So I have... I'm, I'm listening to a bunch of things and my head's blowing up with thoughts. So I think most of us in leasing are probably very creative because by nature of our business, we have to be creative. So I was thinking about the time in 2009 when I was hired to do Midtown Miami. And the world fell apart. We were about 35% occupied. We went and we did all kinds of things, pop-ups, charity, anything to, A, brand the center because most people didn't know what it was in nine. And, and B, um, we just needed to get at least, we had a job to do, we had a purpose and a solution, we, we needed to find a solution to a problem, and in 2010, we did 25 leases. That's wow. unheard of. It was, I didn't even stop, but DDR said, you realize you did 25 leases this year? I said, no, I stopped the count. <laughs> and we did what we needed to do, right? So I think it doesn't matter that if we just did a pop-up for six months or whatever. We were, we were, um, we had that final goal in mind that we had to do something. And the action was, it was an enormous effort. We accomplished it. Um, you know, Midtown today is amazing. Everybody knows it, or most people do. And then as to terms of happiness, happiness is a choice. You can choose to be happy, or you could choose not to be happy. So I think a lot of that is, how are you programmed within are you choosing to be happy are you you know and, and are you solution oriented and driven action oriented to accomplish your goals and or with me you know purpose is a big thing in life now what is your purpose so if your purpose is to lease that shopping center what actions what are you going to take and it doesn't again it doesn't matter if it's the pop-up that comes through the door or you're working your butt off to go find the pop-up just get it done just to use nikes do it just do it right Thank you, Sharon. I'm so happy yeah, to hear your voice and have you participate oh. on this call. Well, I listen in, but often I, 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 I'm listening, but these are, are things that are pretty core to me these days. You know, when I, uh, when I was at Terra Nova, I felt, I don't know, I read something, who knows, I, something came up and I'm like realized that all my leasing team, you know, lacked. And didn't understand as as we were fighting, you know, we were we had our asset managers and we had our tenants and we were in the middle, and you know that the, the asset managers wanted the extra fifty cents per square foot, the tenants didn't want to pay it, and I felt like I had to come up with a purpose for them, and uh, because most of our clients were pension fund advisors, I you know one day said you know we had a leasing meeting and I said guys. When we ask you to go get another 50 cents a square foot, it's not for the asset manager. It's not for principal mutual life. It's for the widows and children, the widows or widowers and children that principal mutual life is paying the beneficiaries for these policies. So that's the purpose. We have to make as much money as possible because these widows and children are relying on this income. And I think it helped. It helped kind of adjust their thinking than, oh, it's just Beth that wants the extra 50 cents or the 24-year-old or the asset manager for MIT that wants the extra 50 cents. You know, where is this money going? It's an insurance policy for, you know, people who bought, you know, policies, in, in, you know, in, in a situation of, you know, tragedy. So I do think that having a purpose, but, you know, back to um, Midtown, I, you know, I'm a huge believer in pop-ups, and many, many times I think pop-ups can turn into 
permanent deal. So I loved all of that. Thank you, Sharon, so much. Um, the, uh, another quote I read in the book, if you think about a young child tr trying to learn to walk, that child will fall down and hurt itself hundreds of times, but at no point does that child ever stop and think, oh, I guess walking just isn't for me. I'm not good at it. So, and he's, and this is a, a chapter where he's talking about how we avoid, how we avoid pain, how we avoid rejection, how we avoid, you know, certain communications. And, you know, and I think that when I'm out preaching about social media, you know, and, and I say, look, two years ago I was not on Facebook, okay? I, I have embraced Facebook with vigor and, and LinkedIn and, and, you know, trying to do Twitter. But I say to people, they go, and I, I have clients and, 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 and students who say, oh, I'm not going to do Facebook, you know, I'm too old for that. And, and I say to people, you know, we didn't know how to drive either at one point, and we learned how to do it. So, you know, there's billions of people on this social media thing. So, like, we can put our head in the sand and say, I'm not going to do it, but I think if you are in that camp, I believe you're going to get left behind. I really do. And it's hard. It's not easy. I'm learning as I'm going. Uh, it's so funny. I'm doing a session in Atlanta at the ICSC next week, and I've got, I'm helping moderate a panel, and it's about personal branding and social media and commercial real estate. And my panelists are, uh, my co-panelists are Jason Ciano from Sabre Real Estate in New York and Chris Ressa with DLC. And they have, you know, these very polished videos <laughs> they're going to show, you know, editing and music. And then I've got me, you know, walking in my neighborhood where at the end of the video, I, I don't even, I can't even figure out how to turn it off. But I said to um, Casey Smallwood, who's actually, you know, the moderator of the two of them, and I'm going to be in the audience with a microphone, I said, I think it's really important for newbies that we show my very raw and uncut and unedited, you know, video, because you can't start and be, you know, with all these bells and whistles. You know, you just have to start with your iPhone, you know, facing yourself, and then, you know, the user error, like I couldn't even turn it off at the end. It's very funny. So, um, but... For those of us that are doing things and we're thinking, you know, I, I just did a, a workshop and I had eight people in the, in, the, in the room and four of them have canvassed once like in the last year. And, you know, we kind of talked about that and, and it was fear of rejection. So I wish I would have had this, you know, this child, you know, walking and falling down quote from the book because... We just – prospecting, if we are leasing people, or I know Barry's on the phone, he sells investment sales. If you are in sales, leasing, pros, we have to prospect. It's like non-negotiable. If you don't prospect, you're never going to perform for the company you work for or the clients you work for. Prospecting is, I don't know, 70 or 80%, I think, of the game. So however we do it, however you do it, cold calling, calling nationals, Facebook prospecting, LinkedIn prospecting, knocking on doors, however we do it, we have to keep doing it. And I've been listening a lot to Grant Cardone lately, as some of you know, and, and they did, there was a podcast last week I was listening to, and, and what they said is, okay, if you like to, if you like to do person-to-person -person prospecting, great. Just, you know, keep doing that, but if you're not a good cold caller or if you're not a good, you know, email follow-up or, like, to former clients, I want you to take the next three days and do, you know, do 100 cold calls if cold calling's not your thing. If cold calling's your thing, then I want you to do go and knock on doors 100 times, you know, to get out of your comfort zone to, you know, match your yin with your yang. And I thought that was interesting because it's so true. When you do, you know, and, and, and I know Barry Wolf, Wolf is on the phone, and I'm going to, you know, call him out, but I know, Barry, you do tons of calls every day. I don't know if it's 50, 75, whatever. My question to you is, do you ever get in an airplane and go see people, or, or locally, do you go see, you know, three or four people in a day person to person, face to face? 
Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are times where I'll maybe make a road trip to a city where I've got a number of clients and plan to see three, four, five people a day. Maybe one, you know, a breakfast meeting, a lunch meeting, a dinner, right. drinks, and a couple people in between. And obviously, how you often do you do that in South Florida, like with your South Florida clients? Not as much as I should, honestly. There you go. Okay, are we gonna are you gonna work on that? Uh, you yeah. can, you can come see me. That would be your first. <laughs> no, but I thought I thought that was interesting because I, I I resort Kara's doing a lot of cold calling, and I'm the canvasser, and she's like, you know, what do you think? How should I improve my cold calling? And I said, go canvassing, <laughs> you know. So I think I should do some more cold calling, and she should do more canvassing. And I think we have to have we have to have a toolbox where we have all of them. And I for my training business. Unless I'm at an ICSE, I never do face-to-face meetings. So I'm going to do that because I think that that is, you know, you got to shake things up, right? you got to shake things up. Okay. Hi, Beth. Uh, this is Matt Ridley. How are you? Hi. How are you, Matt? Good, good, good. I've always um, saw your um, ads in the um, shopping center today, so good to actually be on a call and, um, I guess, virtually meet you. <laughs> Um, you have a so, great accent. Where are you from, Matt? Actually, I'm from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> okay. That, that doesn't sound like you are, but good. I love Ohio. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things, too, though, that's so pivotal is the social media aspect you talked about, um, because I know that that's one of the things that have actually uh, taken off for us in our business, because there's so many brands and things you'll find virtually and even if it's like an online-only business, you know, you do prospect, as you said, in person, cold calling. But, of course, since things are so digital, because Amazon didn't kill retail, but, um, you know, if you will, enhanced it, you have to use those, um, I guess, all senses, you know, almost like your uh, specialty leasing sixth sense of, you know, you're going to meet the person or call them or see digitally what their brand is and be able to convert it to brick and mortar, you know, or brick and cart, however, so um, that part is what I've, you know, done, too, for all aspects, um, you know, because any time you get involved with what somebody's doing, you know, I even tell current tenants, make sure you have a presence online because you use those hashtags. Um, you're on Instagram. You make sure you tag any accounts that's relevant on the picture to get your presence out there. So, right. you know, all-encompassing, you know, it's so important for us to see what's out there for getting new tenants and then encouraging current tenants to use social media to enhance their brand. And are you finding that they're receptive with those suggestions? Yes. Um, I know for one of my tenants, um, when it's something like even National Taco Day that we just had, I said make sure you're posting using all the hashtags, tag the center you're in, uh, you know, the foodie kind of blogs, Things like that, because that very much just gets you, like, even if it's, like, 30 likes, that's still big for a growing brand that's local. So, you know, when they are, it's just very gratifying because it's, like, that's how you nurture and take care of your business, um, both uh, for us as a center and even the tenant themselves. Absolutely. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on the call and, and, and contributing, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I loved about the book, which came, I think, in the second to last chapter, and actually I was re-listening to a few, I, I re-listened today to the last three chapters because I remember thinking that's where I found a lot of meat. And today I heard this quote and I literally stopped and like rewound and listened to it. Um, you can't begin to change if you don't think you're wrong. Being wrong opens us up to the possibility of change. Being wrong brings the opportunity for growth. That was so powerful because I always think I'm right. (laughs) 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 Unless I'm leasing sawgrass and then I realize that I'm wrong. But, um, you know, being salespeople, we have to be very confident. And we do, you know, even though hopefully we never make a prospect wrong because that would be the quickest way for that deal to not happen. But just for person, you know, I'm a self-improvement junkie, as you all know. I just loved this. I loved this. To change, you have to say, okay, I'm not right about this, right? I'm wrong, so now I'm going to change, and then opportunity comes. 
I just think it's, I thought it was, that was my best thing of the book, my best, my best takeaway of the book. So the next time I think I'm right, I'm going to stop and go, am I really right? Or do I need to change? Or what opportunity is this thought process, where is this going to take me? Did any of you guys catch that? I mean, I know many of you probably didn't read the book, but did any of you guys, what do you guys think about that? Beth, this is India again. I think that was really powerful. I watched a TED Talk that was about why you should listen to people and have conversations with people that you don't agree with, and it's very humbling. But I, 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 I think that you learn, and I think that there's a sense of humility, and, and, and even if you think that you're right in listening to someone else and actually just believing or being open to the possibility of new information. And it's something I struggle with all the time because, you know, true but um i don't know it all and i'm i mean i i don't think any of us do but i think just being open to the fact that we could learn something from someone else or be open to the fact that maybe you know be challenged and then you know make a decision at that point are we right are we you know and i think that that is something that um you know i struggle with every all you know every day but it's 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 how you it's how i learn absolutely absolutely i um I think I shared this with you guys in February. In January, we had never split the difference, which to this day, for any, I, I, I see Josie's telling me that there's a lot of new people on this call, so thank you all for joining in, especially you newbies. But if you have not gone back and, and listened to the recording of Never Split the Difference from Chris Voss, which was our January book, it was by far in my whole career – Anybody that's ever read a book and, and, and gotten something out of it for our business and negotiations, it's, it's number one by 100. So I highly recommend it. But, it, it. but going back to this point that, you know, we're discussing now and India commented on was um, in his book he talks about listening. And I – Right after I finished the book, I wanted to try it out, and I have a friend, and we differ on politics, and we were somewhere on a, you know, at, at an event or, or, you know, whatever, walking back from lunch or something, and I threw, I just asked this person a question about, you know, well, and well, what's your position about this in politics? And this person went, literally went on and on and on the whole walk, our whole walk. It was about 25 minutes went on and on and on, and every once in a while I would, you know, ask a question and, you know, can you clarify that, and the whole 25 minutes. And after, and, and I'm, I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening and learning, but at the end of the talk, this person turned to me and said, this was the best talk we've ever had. And I was, and, you know, and this was in this book, Never Split the Difference, he, he talks about, you know, that this it was this phenomena and i don't i think that we probably all because we're in sales we feel you know the definition of listening for a salesperson is waiting for the person to stop talking so you can say your next point right i'm sure you, we can all relate to that so um but anyway i just thought that was very amusing and we'll get back to this book but for those all you new people josie's telling me like 25 new people Go back and listen to that recording of that book, or just go get the book and read the book. Don't even listen to the recording. It was phenomenal. Okay. So um, another quote. We can be truly successful only at something we're willing to fail at. If we're unwilling to fail, then we're unwilling to succeed. And, you know, I think this is a very obvious point that, and this goes to risk, Right, you know, and I'm I'm on this big mission that everyone needs to invest. That no one would invest in retail real estate, presuming we're all in it on this call. No one would invest. No REIT, no developer, GCs wouldn't have a job. Acquisition people wouldn't have a job. Underwriters wouldn't have a job without leasing. And the majority of leasing people don't invest, and it aggravates me to the core. And I'm on a mission that by the time I retire, whenever that's going to be, that I have helped improve that. And, how, and just by pushing you guys, inviting you guys to come in on my deals, whatever it is, we all need to be investing. Because without you and your brain and your market knowledge and your relationships, 
there wouldn't be any acquisitions or any development in the world. So you have to be willing to fail. It's scary. I get it. I get it. But, you know, some of you on this call, I can see who you are, attended Barry Wolf and Mai's acquisition workshop we had a few months ago. We're having it again in December, December 13th. If you're interested in investing, you should come. I literally walked through six of my projects, how I got the financing, how I got the partners, how I found the deal and deals, and Barry walks through how you invest in a freestanding Panera or a freestanding AutoZone. So if if it freaks you out, you know, buying a five, you know, ten-in property, I get it because it's a lot more money. He'll walk you through how to buy a Panera in Ohio, Matt. So if you guys want to learn more about that, or regardless, you know, you don't have to learn from me. There's a million, you know, podcasts and videos of how to buy real estate, or just call me and I'll walk you through it. But, but. Don't, I, I don't think we're afraid to canvas. I, I know some of us, you know, might be afraid of the rejection, but I loved this. You can only be truly successful at something if you're willing to fail at it. Because if we're unwilling to fail, we're unwilling to succeed. You know, for 14 years I've been wanting to write a book. And I don't know why I never wrote the book. Uh, of course, I will tell you why I told myself I didn't write the book. It was because I didn't have the time. But we all manage our own time, so why didn't I write the book? I have no idea. You know, I'm reading, listening to this book today, and I'm thinking, well, did I not write the book? Because if the book sucks, then people will think less of me, you know. And, and then I go back to, no, if the book helps one person, then the book was great. So the book's coming out. You know, you'll all be able to order it soon. Cheap 1999 called Don't Say No for the Prospect. So I'm very excited to be very to be honing in. We're going to send it to the printer I think, in the next two weeks. So watch for that. But scary, 14 years it's been on my to-do list to write the freaking book. So, and I, you know, you got to be willing to fail. I don't think I was, I was willing, I was not willing to, to be willing to fail. So, um, so that's that. Anybody, anybody have a comment on that? Beth, when, um, you said your, your book was on your list for 14 years, but when did you actually put pen to paper? Because, you and I have talked briefly about it, and I feel like, relatively speaking, for you to have it to the printer, putting the first 13 and a half years aside, I feel like you got it knocked out pretty quickly, no? Right. So when you actually put pen to paper? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've looked at four drafts. I'm not writing it. So, so, so that was the first aha moment that I learned. And I think I – so I have a friend that some of you know, Angel Cicerone, who wrote a book. Uh, called, I think, Tenant Mentorship or something like that. She, she writes it, or it's called Growing Small, and it's for the mom-and-pop retailers. And what she did is she wrote 20 minutes every day for a year. And I said, I would rather kill myself. I just could not do that. Then I listened to Crushing It from Gary Vaynerchuk, and he says he audio taped it and someone else wrote it. That's what, basically, that's what we've done. So I have a co-writer, Jill Ratson, who I've known for 12 years. She's a marketing genius, and I've been after her, saying to her, like, loosely for 14 years, 12 years, you need to write my book. You need to write my book. And it just so happened, like, three or four months ago, she said, I have a pause in my schedule. Are you serious about the book? And I said, I'm serious about the book. And we sat down. We put out a – it, it literally was in – I think we started it in June or July, and we said it's, it's going to be out in December. And she is amazing, and we've had five or six meetings. I've looked at four drafts, and we're sending it to the printer. So she, you know, didn't put pen to paper. She put, you know, she typed it on her laptop, but she's written it with my audio. So she would ask me questions. I would send her audio clips back, and she it's in my words, but she wrote it. So it has happened fast, Erin, once, you know, once I found the right person, and we put down, you know, deadlines. Cool. Thank you for asking. Okay. So, how about the, I thought I don't again. I really hate negativity, and you know, and he says, you know, in the book that you know, if you're positive all the time, you're an idiot. But anyways, I, I didn't. This was this was very bothersome to me. This quote, but I believe it. I believe it, and I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Victim mentality. Some choose 
to believe that there is nothing they can do to solve their own pro- their problems when in fact they could. Victims seek to blame others for their problems and blame outside circumstances. And um, there's another quote I wanted to follow up with that one. Hold on. Where is it? I might not have it. Sorry, 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 sorry. Well, I don't, I, I'll find that other one, but this one's another one. We all get dealt cards. Mm-hmm. Some of us get better cards than others. And while it's easy to get hung up on our cards and we feel we got screwed over, the real game lies in the choices we make with those cards, the risks mm-hmm. we decide to take, and the consequences we choose to mm-hmm. live with. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, here's the one I'm Here's the one. This is the one I wanted to follow up that other one with. People get addicted to feeling offended all the time because it gives them a high. Being self-righteous and morally superior feels good. As political cartoonist Tim Kreider put in the New York Times op-ed, outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. And it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. Wow. I thought that was... I just thought that was, wow. I'm sure we all know people in our life that have that victim mentality and that are, that are addicted to feeling offended, and that I see that, that, that it could give them a high, right? I hope, you know, I, I'm going to pay close attention to this for me because I don't think I do it, but, you know, like, like, like you said, you know, you can't always be right, and if you're wrong, then, you're, you know, you'll grow and change. But anybody have any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I can tell you I have a lot of tenants that fit into this category as well. So, Beth, this is Sharon. Yeah. I um, I don't believe in the victim. <laughs> I'm I'm positive Ooh. no matter what what happens. So, in the darkest hours of things that happen in life, yeah. I always feel that there's a lesson there. There's somebody God has done whatever to show you a lesson. There's something you needed to learn. So I'm still trying to figure out certain lessons, but I think there's a lesson, and I think you have to dig deep within yourself to see, are you a fighter or are you just content to allow other people to drive the ship? So I think a lot of us in leasing, we're drivers. We have to make things happen, so you got to create your own thing. And I think if you continue to be the victim, the martyr, and put that out there in the universe, that's what you're going to get back. So if you like that and you, you like negativity and being unhappy, then then put it out in the universe. But I think if you put good positive energy out there, that's what you're going to get back. And we need to be positive because we need to leave space. And we have to, you know, we've got goals we need to achieve. And so I'm a huge believer in finding the positive in everything. You have to find the positive. You have to find the lesson. So, Sharon, you, I'm sure, have not read this book, right? No. Don't read the book because <laughs> okay. I'm telling you, I feel I feel like I am a very optimistic and positive person, and I'm telling you of the eight chapters or nine chapters, the first five were excruciating for me, excruciating. And, I mean, I, I just, I hate it. I posted on, I, on, on Facebook and I said, this is awful because all he did was, you know, kind of say, you positive people out there. You know, you're idiots, and I just hated the book. Did did anyone – I'd love to hear if someone on the call just loved the book. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. It's all – you know, book reading and, and loving books is all a personal preference. So, you know, and, and, and look, I, there are definitely things that I got from the book, and I, I think that I'll, you know, I, I'll think about. But if you're an optimistic person, I'm the glass always half full. I know people say Pollyanna, but this, it was excruciating. Sharon, do not read this book. Well, I think you can learn something, even from yeah. negative, right? If, you, if you're open to the concept, like you talked about your 25-minute your walk, I think you have to be open to looking at other things. I'm, I'm a Libra, so I'm always balancing, you know, I'm looking at the side of everything. Really? Yeah. So I'm always I'm always looking, you know, at someone else's 
perspective because, you know, maybe their reality has defined them differently in their life experiences. So I like to learn. I want to learn all the time. But, you know, so, yeah, so, you know, my husband tended to be less positive than I was, but we balanced one another because we respected each other's positions. And you learn from it. We learn from each other. So. Here's another quote that kind of addresses that. Negative emotions are a call to action. When you feel Mm -hmm. them, it's because you're supposed to do something. Mm -hmm. Positive emotions, on the other hand, are rewards for taking the proper action. When you feel Mm -hmm. them, life seems simple and there's nothing else to do but enjoy Mm -hmm. it. You know, this was true with sawgrass. I had such negative emotions around leasing that property. It, it, it weighed me down every time I thought about it. And as you guys know, I was reading one of the books two or three months ago that said, you know, what's, what's your shift? You know, what is your thing that just weighs you down, and what are you doing differently to try to solve it? And that's when I had the aha moment, like, I've done everything. I, I'm confident in that I've tried everything, and I just need to change things up. You know, and I called Kara. How do you like leasing sawgrass? Uh, is this a trick question? <laughs> so, it, you know, sometimes you just have to change things up. But in that instance, that negative emotion, it was a call to action. And I'm glad I took it. And, you know, Mike is working on a couple of LOIs. So stay tuned. Everyone's teasing him. You better perform for her. So that's kind of funny. Um, I don't – I say – let's see. Oh, he also talks – about, you know, it's so funny. So Vaynerchuk talks about self-awareness all the time. And this guy says the opposite. He says, I say, don't find yourself. I say, never know who you are, because that's what keeps you striving and discovering. And it forces you to remain humble in your judgments and accepting of the differences of others. So I thought that that was interesting. You know, we self-improvement junkies, we will hear conflicting advice and comments from the different sources that we listen to. And I think it's up to us to take what, it, what works for us. But, um, you know, this is obviously complete opposite of what Vaynerchuk says. Have self-awareness. Work on your strengths. Don't worry about your weaknesses. So anyone else want to jump in? I'm, uh, I've got a few more quotes, and it's 1217, so we're going to be done soon. Any other thoughts? Um, hey, Beth, it's Fred. Fred. Hi, Fred. I'm going to opine here real quick, but Beth, it's already up. Oh, good. I'm going to look yes. at it when, I, when we're off the call. Everyone look for Fridays and it's, with uh, Fred, Philip Edison. I'll say it's one of my sawgrasses, so I have four sawgrasses, FYI. Okay. <laughs> but, but, Beth, I've always known you to be perfect. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, you mentioned Josie, and she's awesome, so I think she is your CRM. But... Oh. Um, I am investing uh, heavily in Millie, the Silver Lab puppy, by the way. Um, on the failing thing, I feel like I fail every day, which makes me a better person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you talked about change a few minutes ago. Um, and I don't know if, if, if this is uh, someone else would like to chime in here, but change with retailers. People who have leases that are 10, 12 years old, and there's vacant units in a shopping center where you potentially can put in the new buzzword uh, experiential retail uses or experiential uses. Mm-hmm. And those people are unwilling to give you consents uh, so that you can bring their potential shopper into the center. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear some dialogue on that. But uh, otherwise, Beth, when are you coming to Park City? And I'm very, very jealous that you got to meet Mark Sanborn, who wrote The Fred Factor. <laughs> you know, so so Fred, the Fred on the call from Phillips Edison, hands, hands some of his special friends in Vegas the Fred Factor book. 
And I, in uh, this summer, I was in Dallas, and I'm, I'm at a, a National Speakers Association conference, and I'm sitting at the lunch table, and I turn to this guy, and he's, like, and everyone's saying hi to him. I'm thinking, well, he must be somebody. So we're talking, and he goes, yeah, my name's Mark, and I look at his name tag. I have no idea. And then I, and then he, I go, so what do you do? And he goes, oh, I'm an author. And I said, oh, great. Well, you know, what, you know, what'd you write? He goes, the Fred Factor. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I have to take a picture with you and send it to my friend Fred, who gave me your book the red factor so that was funny i love that yeah well yeah. There's, i have a comment on failure oh. yeah go ahead so oh, did we lose you no i'm here okay go ahead i'm still here okay so you know sarah blakely the founder of spanx yep She's like the one – I think she's one of the youngest billionaires ever. So Sarah Blakely's father every day would ask her, what have you failed at today? She didn't want to know what she succeeded at. He wanted to know what she failed at because when she failed, she was growing and she was learning. So I thought that was a really, you know, interesting thing. There's a whole, there's a whole thing about her dad and, and how he was such an inspiration. And, and you know, she wasn't she – wasn't, yelled at for her failure, she was actually encouraged to make failures because that's the only way she could succeed. And I mean, she's hugely successful with her Spanx brand. I love that. I'm, a, I'm going to ask my kids that. Anyone have anything to respond to, to Fred about, about the, with the retailers? I think they're being really short-sighted. And again, you know, it's case by case, but I've got a deal going on at one of my sawgrasses, and um, I've got a retailer that is still operating as if it's 2004. And I, I say that uh, without any hesitation. It's sad. But oh, I'm sorry. They're missing out. Fred, can you, without, Fred, can, without naming the retailer, if you don't want to throw anybody under the bus, I mean, can you give us high level, like maybe who the, what the category is of the retailer and what they're prohibiting? Would that I don't know if that's too much ten, for you to say ten, ten, your deal, but no, it's a ten thousand square foot sporting goods store that the use is three hundred and eight feet away from their door. There is not a parking issue. There's a drive aisle that would be accessed by both if uh, if they gave us consent. But the fact that their shopper will drive by their store uh, whenever they access this. Again, experiential use. Um, uh, I, I got to believe that that it's it's more of a help than it is a hinder. So, it's a Western Region retail, uh, uh, sporting goods retailer. But I, I just got to think if they keep operating the way they are, um, they do not have an e-commerce platform. But hmm. or just. You know, just sort of the fact that a sporting goods retailer doesn't have an e-commerce platform is a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. That would All be right. a major well, issue. I, um, we have to wrap things up. We've got three minutes left. The next book is Fanatical Prospecting. Uh, I've read it. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. We're call The call is on November 16th. Um, I'm going to be at Atlanta next week, and I'll be in New York, ICSE, so I hope to see some of you. And like I said, Barry and I are going to do the acquisition workshop December 13th in Fort Lauderdale. And, yeah, the book, Don't Say No for the Prospect, coming out. It will be our January book, uh, or maybe February, so that will give you time for, for you guys to get the book. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, you know, send me emails, let me know, and uh, thank you for being on the call. And go have a kick butt rest of October. Bye, guys. Thank you, Beth, and good luck with the book. <laughs>